I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And we continue now with our Do the Right Thing series about ethical dilemmas. And it's sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Daniels Fund. Our own Alex Cortez brings us this latest edition. Today we hear from Brad Anderson, who was a sales clerk at Best Buy in its earliest days and grew along with it to become CEO, helping grow the company to $50 billion in annual revenue and 180,000 team members. But what Brad's most proud of are the innovations and ethics of those on the front line, like Sherry Ballard. I think this is a good parable, sort of, for Sherry's story, somebody I'm close with today, is a, is a good parable of what can be the best inside of business. I first heard about Sherry because we were 
completely disorganized group. We basically did everything hand to mouth. And when we started to grow, we had to formalize things. And virtually nothing had been formalized up to that point in time. So we hired a division of Accenture Consulting to come in and they did a plan and they put a sort of order to the stores as we were growing the stores. And I went out along with uh, two other executives to teach this, this new order structure that everybody would then comply with <laughs> into the system. And so we went out, we spent you know, weeks going all over the country, every store teaching people how to do this. And then we went back to see the glories of our work. <laughs> and nobody changed a thing. <laughs> I wind up hiring a bunch of psychologists led by a lady named Elizabeth Gibson who, who were actually because it wasn't the plan we needed we actually needed it wasn't that the plan was bad it was that, that nobody had any reason to really implement it and and we did not and, and then so we hired these psychologists because essentially you had to change human behavior and the only way you're going to change the, we had to change the behavior at leadership levels throughout the entire organization. So they went out to, and I, the, the lead psychologist comes into my office and she says, we've discovered this wonderful woman working for you. And I, I said, great. And well, she's quitting. And, and why is she quitting? She's quitting because she's had this theft ring inside a store she's managing in Michigan. And she is angry at herself and ashamed at herself that she's let this happen and therefore is quitting. Now, my first thought is, this woman actually has accountability. Man, she must really be great. Wow, yeah, stop her from quitting. So, thank God she didn't. You know, I mean, she was correctly self-accountable because she should have, she should have, a more experienced leader probably would have seen what she didn't see. So she wasn't a thief, or, but she played a role in setting the environment in which they could thrive. But the fact that she knew that she was accountable meant she could fix it, right? She was gonna learn something from it. Whereas so many times when you run into that kind of situation when somebody's trying to either cover it up or won't deal with their own accountability, they're not gonna change. I mean, they're gonna, they will recreate that same environment again because they never faced their own role in creating it. So it was, it was like, again, so much of the time, it's the antithesis of what you think that's the truth. That her, her facing her responsibility for it meant, wow, somebody, it, it's, it's, what, it's what venture capitalists try to do. They want to find a company, they want to invest with somebody who's already had five or six failures because they, they, they want to see that person still in the game and is learning from the mistakes that they've made so that they, they're much advantaged over somebody else who's likely to make the same mistakes. Yeah, she, 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 could, there was a, yeah, she was justified wanting to be fired. <laughs> and not that long after that, she's, again, this goes to how disorderly we were, she's running our human resources department, or she's running her high up in the human resources department. And the same psychologist comes in and tells me that the firm that has been fired by Best Buy. I said, wait a minute, we fired you? Yeah, you fired us. Who fired you? Uh, Sherry Ballard did. <laughs> and so, so I'm sitting there incredibly grateful to these people because unlike me, they actually got the change implemented. 
And they helped me find talent like a Sherry Ballard, who got promoted in the system, and she went ahead and fired him. <laughs> and so I'm so angry at her. <laughs> so I go railing into her office to just bang her on the head. And she fights back. I mean, ferociously fights back that her decision is the right decision. Well, I overruled that decision, but I, I really had respect for her when I left that room. Because even though I didn't agree with any of her logic, I knew I had an authentic human being who stood on their own principle and that I could trust. And that is somebody you can trust who has a substance outside of just going along with, uh, that is a, I mean, that is, every great business I've ever seen is built on that foundation. And you're listening to Brad Anderson, the former CEO of Best Buy, talking about Sherry Ballard, who rose from store manager to being responsible for all of the Best Buy stores in America, Mexico, e-commerce, and the company's real estate strategy. And that someone like Brad Anderson would respect another executive coming at him as the boss head on and allowing the two of them to just disagree and move on. And why? Because trust, well, that was one of the most important principles that uh, Brad Anderson ascribed to in his new leadership role at Best Buy. And at the Daniels Fund, trust is one of the big principles in their Daniels Fund ethics initiative. And trust is the foundation of not only American commerce, but any relationship in the end, whether it's a marital one or a friendship. When we come back, more of our Do the Right Thing series with former executives from Best Buy here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue with Our American Stories and with former Best Buy CEO Brad Anderson for our Do the Right Thing series sponsored by the great folks at the Daniels Fund. In the last segment, Brad told us how Sherry Ballard tried to resign to be accountable for a failure. Our own Alex Cortez reminded Brad that he had made a very similar offer to Best Buy's founder, Dick Schultz. Let's return to Brad. Yeah, it's pretty similar to Sherry's, actually. I never thought of it in that kind of context, but yeah, we had a, we had a, uh, this was 1997, the beginning of 1997, and we had just had, uh, I had to call the suppliers to say we were going to pay them late because on, oh, I think we were doing a billion and a half in revenue and we made two million. As, as accounting practices were in the time, which today I'm sure he restated, we would have lost a fair amount of money, but we barely were making money and we couldn't pay our suppliers on time. It's a whole bunch of, you know, I can give you a whole bunch of excuses for it, but you know, we were not 
successful. Brad wasn't going to tell us the excuses for it because he believes that ultimately he's accountable. But I managed to get the whole story out of him. Well, the problem was, oh, it was, well, first of all, this is, Best Buy was a company, you put like this big edifice on a, on a piece of sand because the, the industry was always, always moving and it was lethal, the companies, you know, like you had all these very successful, like CompUSA, the first computer retailer superstore, hugely successful for a few years and then out of business a few years later because they couldn't adapt to how fast the industry changed. So what had happened during that particular year is with the first part of the year, the first nine months had been great. And then this would be very few people remember this, but Intel used to, because of Moore's law, you know, computers were, you know, twice as fast for half the money in a, in a two year span of time that it was Moore's, Gordon's Moore's law. Well, Intel, which created Moore's law was producing computers that were always, we considered computers like selling, uh, uh, we call the bananas. So if you didn't sell it before the banana was ripe, you, and, and the margins were you know, sometimes negative for a computer line if you sold it fast. So it was an extremely lethal industry to be in. And um, Intel decided, because of their just, they're just functioning with their innovation team, that they would release a new processor in January. Well, you know, almost all the money, especially on a low margin business like us, was made in December, which meant we would be, normally, if they were doing it in regular time, let's say this happened in March, we'd make sure we were out of computers in, starting in February. We'd be out of stock for, but you know, you're going, so you'll have a dip in sales for the month waiting, and then you'd have a spike in, in March when they introduced the new, new, new microprocessors. So you'd have, these, you'd have these cycles, and we were thriving in the business that everybody else was failing in, because we figured out how to deal with that, but not for a change in December, which meant you have no computers to sell to your customers in the month that you do two and a half times the normal month's business and usually make all your profit, and that happened that year. So we were, we were doing really well, but we were always in this, you know, this really difficult, dangerous industry. And all of a sudden, the, if we had sold computers in December, it would have meant that we would have taken them all back in January when the faster microprocessor came out. So all, that, that, that also destroyed our cash flow. That's why we couldn't pay the suppliers. So that, you know, uh, you know again, you, I could have, as an executive, said it's not my fault, but yeah, it's my fault. I mean, I'm running the, you know, I'm running that company and I'm making those choices and we steered into that water and that's where we were. I asked Brad, did he think that was ethical of Intel? Should they care about the ramifications on business partners like Best Buy? If we went out of business, you know, big deal. So, I mean, it's not their job to protect us. And, and their job is that kind of from a customer standpoint, they were, getting the, they were getting their new microprocessor to the market as fast as they, Moore's Law, as they had to beat everybody else. I actually, one of the people I most admire was the guy running Intel at the time, Andy Grove. He wrote the book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. 
right? So he's paranoid. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't want AMD to have a chance to get a microprocessor into the market before Intel does just because he's trying to protect his retailers. Now they did some other stuff that was a little less ethical at the time. But, <laughs> but, but, but they're just being the animal they are. It's like, you know, that thing about, a, you know, a, a, what is it, the frog riding on the back of the, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's their, that's the creature they are, they were. And for their shareholder standpoint, fine. They didn't have to protect us. We'd grown the business tremendously, we're not successful. So I went in to, to tell the founder that if I were in his shoes, I would fire me for the results. And he didn't. But I would have. <laughs> so, uh, now, out of that, we became pretty successful like a year later. But uh, I do believe in accountability. <laughs> so why didn't Best Buy founder Dick Schultz fire Brad? For the same reason I didn't want Sherry fired, I think. Right? It's like, it's, you're going to bring somebody else in. You know, you, what I was worried about is because you know, Dick Schultz, the founder of Best Buy, is a moral, loyal man that, and, and I played a significant role in helping get the company where it was at, including where it was at then. Part of the reason I was saying it so directly to him is I was worried that he would not fire me for the wrong reasons. And uh, I wanted to make sure he knew that I thought I should be fired and, and I wanted to make it as easy as possible for him to do it. But I think, I, I, this is speaking, I don't know, but I'm, I'm guessing that he might not have fired here in this for me for the same reason that he, at least I was acknowledging that I owned the problem. And that if he brought somebody else in that didn't own the problem, it wouldn't necessarily have turned around as fast. A lot of people would have made a different decision in that context. Uh, and, and, and it could have been the wrong decision, but, but if you're framing it with a sense of morality, it, 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 you're more likely to make a good one. He said, what do we do to fix it? And I had thought about what do we do to fix it. That's where we get the other part of the story I told you about where we had to standardize practices and that was hiring Accenture uh, to come in and develop new practices and then basically make the business much more scientific than it was much more professional and scientific than it was. And that cost money to develop the plan to do that, and then, and then we had to implement the plan. So that was the, those two stories are actually connected. But it, I do think underneath it all, you got, how does he know it's gonna work anymore than anybody else does, right? It's, there's, it, was an, it was an idea about how you're gonna fix it. And, 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 the, you know, and it included a price tag that was 20 times what we earned the following year in terms of we were going to have to invest money we didn't have to fix it. So it was a real leap of faith. So not only is this guy coming in to quit, but he's got this strategy for fixing it that's expensive. And, and I, gotta, I gotta do that leap of faith to be able to... So I don't know what, you know, yeah, I, 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 I hope he would have kept me fired if I didn't have a strategy to turn it around. 
then he, yeah, if he didn't fire me, that would be, I'd say, inexcusable. And the, what turned out, what we to do to fix it was, wish we'd done it a long time ago, but it worked. And a special thanks to Alex and Robbie for their production and work on that piece. And also a special thanks to Brad Anderson, who is the former CEO of Best Buy. And our Do the Right Thing series, as always, is sponsored by the great folks at the Daniels Fund. To learn about bringing their ethics programs to your school, business, or police department, go to danielsfund.org. Our Do the Right Thing series with former CEO of Best Buy, Brad Anderson, here on Our American Stories. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, a story from John Elfner. He's a high school history teacher in Illinois who wants to introduce us to an incredibly special American car carrying on a celebrated tradition. Here's John. That's the unmistakable sound of American V8 muscle that revs the hearts of the young and old alike. For some, the feeling has been with them since childhood, but for a lot of Americans, the thrill of high RPM V8s is new, and the introduction came for many with the Hollywood hit film Ford vs. Ferrari. That movie tells the story of how in the mid-1960s, Ford Motor Company decided to get into racing with one goal, beat Ferrari, the Goliath of endurance racing. In 1964, Ford set a goal of beating Ferrari in the most famous endurance race, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. It took a few tries, but after three years of racing with the Ford GT, Ford did win, and they would continue to win, beating Ferrari for the next three years at Le Mans. And how did they do it? They built a supercar called the Ford GT40. In 2003, Ford decided to take on Ferrari a second time, building an updated version of the same car, but this one would be available for the public. Here's Bill Ford Jr., chairman of the Ford Motor Company, announcing the return of the Ford GT at the 2002 Detroit Auto Show. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the return of the GT40. Ford had decided to build a show car for the 2002 Detroit Auto Show. The thing was an absolute hit. It was really a hit. That's Neil Ressler, and at Ford, he's a legend. He's worked with Ford Performance Cars since the 60s, holding just about any job you can think of at the company that involves cars going fast. Neil became a vice president at Ford in 1994, and then he retired in 2001, but he continued to do work with Ford on special projects. And one day while at the Ford headquarters, he bumped into Bill Ford Jr. I felt some hands on my shoulder and I looked up and it was Bill Ford Jr. who was the chairman at the time. And he said, uh, so we got this show car in the Detroit show that's going on right now. It's just taken the, the, the show by storm. People say I should put it in production. I don't even know if I should. You might be thinking, why was that even a question? But the thing about a show car is they aren't really road ready. The show car was really a three-dimensional picture. It made a lot of noise, but you wouldn't have driven it more than five miles an hour. I mean, it looked great, but it wasn't a car. Bill Ford Jr. could think of a lot of reasons to not put the Ford GT into production. This project would be expensive, and the project might fail. Furthermore, the Ford Motor Company wasn't known for these kind of projects. People thought of Ford, and they thought reliability, nicely built trucks, a little bit sporty Mustang, but the Ford GT was something entirely different. In spite of that, Ford had one very big reason to build this car. They were about to celebrate an anniversary. Finally tonight here, Made in America, the Ford factory celebrating its 100th birthday. Celebrating 100 years at Ford's Rouge factory means looking at the past while keeping your eyes on the future. 
looking at the past while keeping your eyes on the future. That's what the Ford GT project was all about. And that's why Bill Ford decided to go ahead with production of the Ford GT. And according to Neil Ressler, there was another reason Ford needed a project like this. We needed, uh, we needed something to talk about. We were a little bit light on uh, product at the time. Building a modern version of the Ford GT40 was a chance to rebrand the image of the company, or as insiders at Ford would say, polish the blue oval. It had captured the imagination, both of the magazines and the newspapers and the prospective buyers. So Ford made a lot of it, but uh, it came at a time when we needed to have something made of it. Bill Ford Jr. asked Neil Ressler to come back to Ford for one more project. And Neil's specialty was racing. And finishing this car in time for the centennial celebration, it was going to be a race. We had to have a finished car in June of 2003 because that was going to be the Ford Centennial Celebration, which was a major blowout. The Ford Centennial was going to be huge. Ford knew the event was an opportunity to highlight how Ford Motor Company had been a consistent thread in the fabric of 20th century America. During that century, Ford had invented the consumer car in the form of the Model T. Then during World War II, they quit making cars and built airplanes, tanks, and jeeps, which were vital to winning the war. After the war, Ford reimagined the sports car for the post-war generation. As a result, Americans not only drove their car to work, but in a Ford Mustang, they looked cool doing it. And of course, they dominated endurance racing in the 1960s with the Ford GT40. In each of these cases, Ford had attempted a moonshot, something that seemed nearly impossible, and in each case, they'd succeeded. The reissue of the Ford GT in 2003 was a chance to do that again and remind people that the Ford Motor Company was woven into the fabric of America. But building three production-level cars before this event, well, that was going to be tough. 16 months, that's the amount of time the team had to build a car, basically from scratch. We had less than two years from the start to get the finished cars ready, get the design, develop, test, develop a supply base, get a factory up. We didn't have a car, we didn't have a location, we didn't have a team, we didn't have any suppliers lined up, we didn't have anything. All we had was a dream. Given his background in racing, Neil knew exactly what he would need on this team to make it work. We would obviously have to form a, a very small core team and I was interested in having guys but who'd been involved in motor racing. And the reason for that is that, that if you're an engineer in motor racing, and most of all you're concerned with timing and there's never enough time in racing, because as the old saying goes, the race starts. The only question is whether you're there. So Neil started to assemble a team made up of a lot of people who came out of professional racing. Primarily, I would always tell people, what I do is help make the cars go fast through the corners. That's the voice of Scott Allman. He was one of the first engineers that Neil chose to help build the car. And Scott was the profile of the kind of person Neil wanted on his team. He was in my motorsports department. He had spent at least, I think, two years with uh, Bobby Rahal's team down in, uh, in Ohio. Rahal was very impressed with Scott, as I was too. My vehicle dynamics role at Team Rahal was to help figure out the best setup for our elite drivers at some of the fastest racetracks in the world. Neil asked Scott to be part of the design team. For Scott, there were a lot of good reasons to take this job. The GT40 was Scott's favorite car. He loved this car so much that before the program started, the Ford GT40 was his screensaver. And don't tell anybody this, but all of Scott's passwords included GT40 in some way. But despite his love for the GT, 
Scott knew this was going to be nearly impossible. The normal program would be like three years with almost three times the amount of people versus our 14 months with one third of the people. The pressure on the design team was going to be immense. And the challenges of finishing this car in time, well, they were real. Despite these problems, Scott really wanted to work on this car. And that car actually, just, just the style of the car, the beauty of the car, was my favorite car in the world. But it wasn't going to be easy. We obviously only had time for one pass. You had to design it and develop it, and you didn't have time to fix anything. It was, it was going to be what it was. And when he was introduced to a guy named John Coletti, the director of engineering, he told Scott the score. He said to me, he said, well, we have no time, no budget, no people, no choice. Welcome to the team, Allman. All of that was absolutely right on. And timing wasn't the only problem. At the beginning, all we had was, was the body. Anything underneath was not done. We had to start from scratch. In the early days of the program, Scott didn't think this job could get done. Even with my experience of working 70 to 100 hours a week, deadlines every single week in racing, in IndyCar and then in NASCAR, this seemed, this seemed really insurmountable, impossible. But Ford didn't see it that way. The eyes of the company were on us, and uh, they were expecting us to succeed, and failure is just not going to work. And you've been listening to this story of the making of the updated version of the Ford GT, celebrating, of course, not just the 100th anniversary of Ford itself, but remembering the remarkable feat of producing one of the great race cars of all time, the Ford GT40. When we come back, the story of the Ford GT 2.0 continues. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we're continuing with the story of the Ford GT and its reincarnation. Here again is John Elfner. The Ford Motor Company had its 100th anniversary coming up in July of 2003. And to mark the occasion, they wanted to do the impossible. They wanted to build a supercar in the image of the Ford GT40 that beat Ferrari in the 1960s Le Mans races. And they didn't just want this car to look good, they wanted this car to beat Ferrari, just like they had 30 years earlier. Here again is Neil Ressler, the project's director. We picked as our image cars a Ferrari 360. After nearly 30 years, Ford was going to take on Ferrari again, this time selling a supercar. But beating Ferrari, the makers of the best supercars in the world, was no guarantee. Given the extraordinary time pressures that were placed on this team, this project was different than anything Ford had done before, at least since 1963. And Neil's decision to pick people who'd been involved in professional racing was essential to completing this project. Here again is Scott Allman, one of the chief engineers on the project. What we would say in racing is you have to unload fast. Basically, the car has to be fast as soon as we unload because we have so little time before we race. It was the same, same kind of mentality, the same mindset, the same importance on the Ford GT program because we didn't have time to iterate. We had to get it right the first time. And according to Scott, a lot of people within Ford didn't even think this project would be a success. So they backed away. I mean, there was almost no one who thought that we would achieve the performance at the cost we were supposed to achieve it at and within the timing. The short amount of time was certainly a challenge, but it also created an unexpected opportunity for the team. Executives not directly attached to the program begin to back off, and the team got an enormous amount of room to operate in the way that they wanted. So beyond just not having to have meetings for meetings, we didn't have all this tracking and checking that would go on typically at Ford, and everybody trying to understand your status of every element of design, every part of the timeline. We didn't have this tracking and checking. And that allowed the team to operate more like a racing team. 
The Ford Centennial in June of 2003 was our race day. We had to have three production level cars ready for the Centennial. By viewing the Ford Centennial as a race day, all these engineers with racing experience really became comfortable with the process. No, there wasn't going to be any real race, but they saw the Ford Centennial as the starting line. When you do racing, you can't show up late. That's Mark McGowan, and he was the test driver for the program. It's like you have to get it done and show up at the start line. Nobody's going to wait for you. If you can't make it, they're going to leave without you. And Neil Ressler felt the same way. We were only going to have time for one design iteration. There was definitely not going to be time to go back and fix things, so they had to work the first time. And that meant there would be plenty of long nights in this program. So my first all-nighter on the program was two weeks in. I think he was working on the tire design. We all went home, you know, 7 o'clock at night, head home. Of course, we come back in at 7 in the morning, and there's still Scott, because Scott needs to get this thing done. And I'd spent an all-nighter, and I was wearing the same clothes the next morning when my manager came in, and he looked at me, and he did a double-take, and he's like, did you stay here all night? And I said, yeah. And he said, we're not doing that on this program. And I said, what choice do we have? And that became the mentality of the 30-person team. They worked for the next 14 months, getting that car ready quickly. And out of that, the team developed a motto, no churning. No churning came from our director, John Coletti. And really, it was an important aspect of the program that once a decision was made, and pretty much every decision was big on the Ford GT. But once a decision was made, it was not revisited unless there was really a, a major issue. It was like racing. We had race day. It w we couldn't push back that deadline. Because Neil Ressler had put together a team that was used to the pressures of a deadline, they did get their cars built. And in a few months, the first prototype was ready to test drive. Forcing our first drive by our ride and handling development guys, in the first prototypes, they were really quite happy with how the car behaved. Right out of the box, this car was an eye-opener. It doesn't take long to realize that this car is going to be good. Making the car an extension of the driver was the goal. You knew the car was so good because you didn't think about it. The car would just go where your mind put it. And it was like your brain was hardwired to the vehicle. It just did what your brain said to do and it was so effortless they were just excited about the car and it was just it was so different than what they had experienced before first level prototypes after one lap we knew this was going to be really a good car it didn't have any problems nothing it just worked it's just so rewarding it's, it's actually intoxicating it's almost almost like a drug it exceeded what they had experienced in the past by far this thing is going to be something and it's going to be something very special first drive was a huge success, but later the team needed to push this car to its limits. That's why they went to Italy's Nardo Ring. I really was insisting that the top speed start with a two. I wasn't interested in anything that was going to go 199. We had to have something that would go over 200. We couldn't do that anywhere in America. The only place we could go was Nardo. I think it's like an eight mile oval or something. The Nardo Ring is a famous test track in Italy, designed for high-speed testing. Speed records of all sorts have been achieved at Nardo, and Neil knew the team could push the Ford GT to its limits there. It was flat foot the whole time. Here again is test driver Mark McGowan, and he was going to drive the Ford GT to its limits. 
The first time we ever got one of these cars over 205 miles an hour was in Italy at a track called Nardo. I can still hear the distinctive tink of the accelerator pedal hitting the aluminum floor and just sitting there for four laps, never lifting. And that's a little mind blowing. It's like, I'm, I haven't lifted and I've been on the floor for 15 minutes now. And of course, after 15 minutes, you're out of gasoline. You go through 18 gallons of gas in 16 minutes, by the way. <laughs> the testing at the Nardo ring was an extraordinary success. McGowan drove that car around the eight-mile ring at 212 miles an hour. The team knew what they had in the Ford GT, and they were excited to get some of the automotive magazines to review the car. We're pretty much at the end of the program. We're at a track on the western Michigan called Gingerman. Car and driver was invited to come out and drive the car. After all that work, production, and testing, the day of reckoning had arrived. They show up with a Ferrari 360 Stradalia. Hold on a second. The Stradale was the race version of the 360 Modena. This wasn't the car that they were trying to beat. This was the much faster car that Ferrari produced. That car was specifically meant for running at, at the racetrack. For 14 months, all of the targets had been based on the Modena, not the Stradale. So how would the Ford GT compare to the Stradale? We didn't know. We didn't have one of those to compare against. And so we, you know, we weren't sure. But they tested it anyway against the Ford GT. And what did Car and Driver and Motor Trend and Road and Track have to say? First place, Ford GT. It wasn't even a contest. And if we had wanted to make this a real challenge, we would have had to go way up the supercar price ladder. The GT narrowly edged the Ferrari in the lane change and track lapping test. Two second per lap advantage over a Ferrari. Far more downforce than the Ferrari Modena. Much easier to drive hard than the Ferrari 360. The Ford was the quickest in a straight line in every measured test. Ferrari 360 Modena, a wonderful car that the GT should be able to leave in its dust. Return of the Ferrari Slayer. The Ford GT passed its test with flying colors. It had beaten Ferrari. But there was still one thing waiting for them. Race day, the Ford Centennial. And did they make it? You bet they did. Ford was so excited about this car that they bought a Super Bowl commercial to brag about it. Introducing the Ford GT. This is the one. The pace car for an entire company. In fact, Neil gave a speech to the entire team at the celebration just before the car was introduced. I said, you know, I'm at the end of my career. For me, this will likely be the highlight of my career. But you guys, you will remember until the day you leave Ford and, and even after that. Being my dream car, and this is all I wanted to do, it was an incredible program. See it from start to finish, for sure. It was, you know, I mean, there was a lot that kept me there. What, what other job would anybody else want? It was the car to work on. It was definitely a pinnacle. It was the highlight of my career. As far as I can tell, everyone who was on the program regards it as the highlight of their career and I regard it that way myself. They'd done it. They delivered a car to the starting line for the Ford Centennial celebration. They'd beaten Ferrari. And by treating the project like a race team, they didn't just recast history, they ended up creating a modern day classic that became for Ford Motor Company, a pace car for a new generation. And a special thanks to John Elfner, for digging in on that story, and it's a classic, an American classic. And my goodness, we got to hear from 
test driver Mark McGowan, Scott Allman, and Neil Ressler, legends in the business. A great American car story, the second version of the Ford GT, the updated version, the improved version. That story here on Our American Story. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 